There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace, and today we're going to talk about the yin and yang of leadership. Now, in my experience, truly great leadership doesn't just happen. Great leaders really build their skills, their insight, and their perspective over time. And I have to say today, the demands and expectations of leaders have never been higher. But now, contrary to popular belief, that isn't just about doing, 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 doing. Great leaders also know that they need to take time to reflect and to examine their own preferences and biases. So while this outer work of leadership, looking at the behaviors that make a difference in inspiring people, is so hugely important, Equally, that inner work of looking at yourself is makes a huge impact on leadership effectiveness, and that's what we're going to talk about it talk about today. So first, we're going to look at this nature of this inner and outer work, and particularly the mental models that each of us has. And then second, we're going to look at this concept of versatility, agility, and adaptability, and explain why all of that is tied together, what it means, and what you can do. So with me today is a great colleague, Rob Kaiser. Rob is an author, advisor, and globally recognized authority on leadership. He works in Kentucky, Copenhagen, Kenya, and around the world, and he has a fabulous set of tools for assessment and development, in fact, among my favorite tools of all. Rob has published many articles in both the scientific literature and in the international business press, and we have published a number of papers together as well, a few, I should say, in comparison to Rob's many. He's the author of five books, The Versatile Leader, The Perils of Accentuating the Positive, and fear your strengths. And he's also the current editor of Consulting Psychology Journal. So Rob is both practical and useful, and I'll add to that scientific. Extensive experience as a coach, a great evaluator of executives, and a um, advisor on strategic talent management to CEOs and HR leaders. So Rob, welcome to the show. Well, thanks a lot for having me, Wanda. As I was listening to you say that, I was thinking, wow, this guy sounds good. You're better he at is. me than my mother is. <laughs> <laughs> we should trade stories on that one. You are good. I love your work, Rob. I think it's fabulous, particularly the stuff I've done with you. No, I'm joking about that. All right. <laughs> well, that's pretty good, too. That's some of my favorite stuff, to tell you the truth. <laughs> you know, I've been looking forward to this call, Wanda. It's been a crazy last couple of weeks. i got to couple of big projects going on that are pretty thorny, high stakes, high visibility. And, you know, it's always so much fun to talk with you. So this is a nice break for me. Really looking forward to the show, Rob. It's great fun. We always have lots of good conversations. Um, But you're right, Rob. Everybody I talk to, every client I talk to, people are stressed. And I think the stress is not so much driven by the demands of the job as it is something else. Um, So what are you finding? What's that like advising and coaching executives to deal with the craziness that's out there now? Hmm. Well, what a great question. Uh, There is a lot of craziness out there, without a doubt. 
you know, I mean, you look at any any business magazine in the airport, there's something about complexity on that, or maybe somebody's got a book on chaos theory and emergence or the age of paradox, you know. We live in a smaller and smaller world, but yet there's bigger and bigger competition. Stuff's moving really fast, and everything's changing. What was that? Uh, Nathan Taleb's got that great book, uh, The Black Swan, you know, how those events that are highly improbable but yet to happen and have a seismic impact. It, it seems like we have a, an, almost a new language, a new set of concepts for describing the operating environment of the 21st century. I will say we certainly seem to be good at creating new language. Um, and the current thing to talk about here, we've done with Alan South on former radio shows, is this whole notion of the fourth industrial revolution, as if there isn't enough going on, the pace of change, and so forth. A lot of people call this VUCA world, you know, the volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguity. Sometimes I get tired of just having another label for it. What's your view? (laughs) Well, you know, (laughs) I get a kick out of it. I know what you mean. Everybody seems to be talking VUCA this, VUCA that. And, I, you know, I remember the first time I heard an executive use the concept, oh, gosh, it's been 10 years or so now. He just watched that movie Black Hawk Down, you know, where a bunch of street thugs in Mogadishu had managed to bring a United States military to its knees. And he was telling me, Wanda, he was saying, you know, Rob, you have to understand the international soft drinks market or industry is a, is a VUCA world. I was thinking to myself, you know, come on, selling soft drinks is not a matter of life or death. <laughs> but, yet, you know, I, I think he was trying to tell me something, Wanda. You know, as I reflected on it, our way to the airport, thinking about our conversation, how we settled into it, I think he was trying to tell me that he felt overwhelmed, like he was in over his head, like it was almost too much to deal with, you know? That's certainly what I hear when I talk to people. So clients will ask me, you know, Wanda, can you do a thing on stress? And, you know, what do you think about all this mindfulness that's going? And, yeah, I can do those topics. But when I sit down with people and say, what's the source of the stress? It's this feeling of being overwhelmed or worse. It's the feeling that if I'm not overwhelmed, I might have missed something. Yeah, that's right. You know, when, when I see these kinds of things, I try to break it down. Okay, so what do we mean here? You know, for instance, let's take this whole VUCA concept seriously for a minute, right? So there's volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity swirling all around. Well, what does that mean? What are the performance requirements of dealing with a VUCA world? So let's take volatility. Stuff happens really quick. You don't see it coming. It pops up. Well, that requires a rapid response. Well-honed skills are easier to deploy, and the, the performance requirement is speed. With uncertainty, you know, the inability to know for sure what's going to happen requires patience and a contingency plan. You know, the requirement is flexibility. We think about a complex operating environment where you've got a bunch of moving parts that are all interconnected. Well, it requires a broad range of response options. So the performance demand is breadth. And finally, in an ambiguous situation, there are multiple meanings, and it's not always clear what's going on. It requires objectivity, you know, without projecting your bias and seeing what you want to see, but seeing what it is as it really is. And the performance demand there is self-awareness to know yourself and know your proclivities, your biases, and your prejudices. But, you know, here's the thing. 
as crazy as the VUCA world is out there, I think the secret to leading in all this craziness is actually in here, in our hearts and our minds. The inner work of development is the key. So, Rob, I like how you said that. The, the volatility really requires the, the ability to read it in the moment and have a range of options, so speed. So it's both a bit of breadth, but understanding I've got those skills ready to move quickly when I need to. The uncertainty really requires patience. I love that you said that. And ultimately, what that means is flexibility. I can't just have one targeted way. I've got to have some contingencies on one way or the other way. And the ability to dance between those as I need to. And then the um, complexity is knowing that I have to have a bunch of options. So it's breadth. If I don't have some breadth, then I'm going to have a hard time dealing with the number of people that are involved, plus the interdependencies that are involved. And then this last one, the ambiguity means that there's multiple meanings, and that's not getting trapped in my own view. I love that. It's a clever way of describing what VUCA is about. So <laughs> I'm glad you found that useful. It was very useful. I like that one. So, and I agree with you that this ability to deal with the craziness of today, the feeling of overwhelm, the stress, the VUCA, whatever the the fourth industrial revolution, whatever we want to call it lately, comes down to an ability in our self, in our hearts and minds. So, what do you? How do? You, what is this inner work really all about? And how do you get people to do it? Well, you know, we often think of leadership development as, as what I'd call the outer work, you know, behavior change or learning new skills and competencies, you know, doing stuff differently. And that's how most executives kind of think about development when we talk to them about this stuff. They get, oh, I need to make a change in my behavior. Well, you know, that's as fine as far as it goes. And behavior is where the rubber meets the road when it comes to performance. But what we're trying to get at, Wanda, is, and I know you're there. Your mind works this way, too. What's behind the behavior? What's driving it? Where does it come from? What's the psychology behind the behavior you see? You know, the operating assumptions, the mindsets, the sense of self, our various identity constructions and attachments, and, you know, even strong feelings like our hopes and dreams and aspirations and even those worries and concerns and fears all that stuff, that's, that's, that's what we call the inner work of development. You usually have to change your mind if you want to change your behavior. So, Rob, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I know when I first started doing coaching and doing leadership development work, I spent all my life dwelling in the uh, behaviors. So what are the actions that you're going to do and how are people going to react to that and so forth? But today, particularly with all of this complexity and uncertainty and stress that's going on, I'm finding that I do more and more and more inner work. I'm going to give you an example. This last week, I was working with a whole group of people, financial services clients, um, and the issue is, for many of them, has to do with presence. You know, how do I present myself in a, with strong executive presence? And we all carry that imposter syndrome inside of ourselves, mm-hmm. all of us. Um, those that don't, we got to question their abilities, but that's a different story. <laughs> and I find that to deal with the executive presence, something as behavioral as how you present yourself in the world, I end up spending a lot of time talking about the inner psyche, the images you carry with yourself, about yourself, 
the story mm. you tell yourself, the voice in your head. And until I get that straight, I can't get the rest of it clean. Oh, gosh, I really love the way you say that. And that's it. I think it is. I mean, you know, what is the self? And I don't mean to get off on a tangent and philosophical kinds of musings and stuff. It seems so far removed from a conference call tomorrow morning. But I, I, we do tell ourselves these stories. And that is what our self is. It's our, our identity. It's who we think we are. You know, my friend Bob Hogan's got a wonderful way of saying there, there are two yous. There's the you that we know. That's what we see. That's the kind of your reputation, what we make out of all the stuff we see after interacting with you. But then there's the you that you know, the person you tell yourself you are. I like to think of it as, you know, we've got these inner narratives, these, these, these dialogues that help us make sense of our world. And the star of that story is you. <laughs> and you get to tell whatever story you want to about who you are. And there's two parts of that that are really interesting. One, how you define yourself gives you a sense of self and direction and purpose and tells you what to do and what to do next and how the star of your movie acts. But there's another side to it, too. The stories we tell ourselves about who we are also tell us who we're not. And the interesting thing I find in working with managers and executives, Wanda, is that it's the self-limiting beliefs, the this is me, this is not me, that become rigid and fixed somehow and give us, ironically, give us the, the sturdiness and the certainty in the face of all this uncertainty. But at the same time, they become some of our biggest limitations for breaking through and finding a better way. That um, I love that one. And if you take, so the how you define yourself is one part of this, the purpose, what I do, how I do it, why I do it, and the one I tell myself I'm not. If you take that back to the context of the radio show here, this notion that, that um, people are experts and they define themselves as being the one who knows and can get it done. Yeah. knows better than everybody else. And that says that my value is and who I am and my purpose and my contribution to the company is about my intellectual knowledge in my head, my ability to execute. Mm. And it leaves out a whole other set of stuff. So as I'm trying to help people understand how to transition out of expertise leadership into non-expertise leadership, it's fundamentally about helping them redefine who they are and who they're not. Okay? That's it right there. That's that's the key. So as we're talking about development here, right, and the inner work and all that sort of stuff, I think you have to help an executive go inward. You know, somebody who's stuck, somebody who's trying to find a way to contend with all the stuff going on around them. To, to be a more versatile leader, to be able to navigate all this disruption around them, I think the key is to hone in on that story you tell yourself about what you are, who you are, what you do, and who you're not. Now, this can all sound kind of fluffy, so let me, let, me, let me ground it a little bit. There's a couple of tools we use in coaching top managers to become more versatile leaders. Now, I love this one. It's a, I'll kind of ask them at the beginning of a relationship. You know, we're kind of setting up, going over ground rules, discussing the process, getting to know each other. And innocently enough, I'll, I'll ask them a question, Wanda. I'll say, well, what one thing more than anything else do great leaders do? And I'll role play this with a little example from years ago. 
he says, uh, he says, oh, that's easy. Great leaders bring a brutal whiff of clarity. And here's the setup. So the second question. I say, yeah, brutal whiff of clarity. Wow. Okay. Well, what do you mean by that? He says, well, you know, you're really direct, and you let people know exactly where they stand and what's on your mind and what you expect. Brutal clarity. Okay, got it. Yeah, I can see how that's useful. Well, what's the opposite of brutal clarity? And without missing a beat, he says, oh, that's that namby-pamby, go-along-to-get-along kind of, you know, try-to-please-everybody kind of leader. <laughs> like... Well, that didn't sound very good. He says, no, it's horrible. And I'll tell you what, the corporate world is full of people like that. So I said, well, gosh, let me try again. I didn't mean, you know, a straw man here. What's one good thing and what's one bad thing? No, I mean, if, if being clear, if brutal clarity is a virtue, if it's yin, well, what's the yang? What's the other good thing to do? You know, it's not like night's bad and day is good. They're both good. They're both necessary. So what's the end to the end for your brutal clarity? And this really successful senior person, Wanda, with a track record, very impressive, he looked at me like a deer in the headlights. He didn't have an answer for me. And I, I let the, you know, the uncomfortable, awkward silence hang there for a good 10 seconds or so. And he was kind of looking, and you can see that the wheels were turning. And, you know, to break the, the tension, I... You know, kind of smiled gently and lowered my head a little bit. And I said, ah. you know, I mean, of course it's important that people know where you stand and you level with them. But, you know, sometimes it's also important to be tactful and diplomatic about making your points so that they can hear what you're saying and not get hung up in how you're saying it. And he says to me, Wanda, he says, tact, yes, I've gotten feedback on that. But I still believe in brutal clarity. <laughs> I mean, you could say this guy had a real attachment to this idea of seeing himself as a tough guy. Yeah, yeah. And in places, that will serve him incredibly well, no doubt. There are also places where it doesn't serve him as well, as we both know, and so does he in some places, too. Well, would you be shocked to find out that when we did the assessment and talked around to everybody else on the top team and what they thought of him and his career prospects, that they were concerned that engagement was low and some top people in his organization had recently left? Uh, I wouldn't be, no. (laughs) (laughs) You might say it got him to a certain place, but it was now career-limiting. It was time well, for him to switch ponies. With some people, that would be a f- it will work brilliantly as a style. It just doesn't work necessarily with everybody as a style. <laughs> the yin and well, yang nice. of leadership, the opposites. There's one thing that we hold in our head as being absolutely the most important thing to do as a leader. And then your proposition is that there is a polar opposite, a yang, that <laughs> is just as good, just as valuable, but is just the opposite. I call it the thermodynamics of leadership, Wanda. For every good thing, there's an equal and opposite good thing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thermodynamics is taking me down a route I don't want to go. I want to go backwards for just a minute because I want to come back and talk about this yin and yang in a little more detail. But I want to go back to something you said earlier about the stories that we carry. Mm. And um, 
I want to talk for a minute about the kind of stories that you see people carrying in their head. And let me lead this in by saying I have been fascinated recently by how many people carry a hero version of what it means to lead. Mm -hmm. That I had to, you know, I alone have to lead the charge and I have to have the answer and people are following me and I go in and I save the day and I fix the problem for the customer and I will be loved and valued and paid and everything else that comes with it because I'm the hero. Now, that's my version of one of those stories. But what, what kind of stories do you hear from people about what they their ideal leader is like and therefore what they try to do? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I hear a lot of different stories. It almost seems, Wanda, that everyone has her own story or his own story. Uh, at the same time, if you listen carefully, they kind of come together. It's neat how you said it, you know, this is my version of the hero's story, which isn't that different from, you know, Homer's Iliad or Odyssey or Luke Skywalker in Star Wars or Moana in that recent Disney film. Those are all some version of the hero's story. And there's, uh, it's, a, it's a very popular one, time and culture. People have, have, have long kind of gravitated to the mythology of, of the hero. But, you know, there's, there's all sorts of, of different stories, too. You know, there's, like I just described, the tough guy story with Mr. Brutal Clarity or the great servant story, everyone from Jesus Christ to Mahatma Gandhi or maybe the inventor story, you know, innovators like Edison or Steve Jobs. And then there's, you know, even the more humble or day-to-day practical get-it-done story of the reliable expert you were talking about, somebody who knows exactly what to do and has all the answers and can figure it out and problem-solve. Okay, so I love those. So there's the hero story, which we all know and don't stop to look at how frequent it is um, in our Western culture. The Mm -hmm. tough guy story, kind of brutal clarity, the great servant story, I'm here for humble leadership. We've seen a lot written about that one, and my job is to put the team forward and serve the team up and make the team the center. And there's the inventor story, Steve Jobs, Thomas Edison. I'm sure there are others that could come to mind. And then there's the executor story. I'm the one who's going to get it done. I make it happen. Yeah. Sound pretty it. good to me. So now, is your contention, Rob, for each of these stories that we carry – one version of what what we should be doing, how we define ourselves based on that story, but it leaves out the polar opposite of that story, the things that I don't do. Is that what that's you mean? It. Yeah, that's it. You you went there. Here's here's what I find, and you know, this is you mentioned. I do you know some scientific research on leadership and development. The research we've done around this stuff is, you know, it's not quantitative. It's not as easy to measure this stuff. It's really fuzzy. It's been very qualitative, grounded kind of research. Frankly, most of it comes out of my own coaching practice when I'm working with an executive client and, you know, going to those real places and having these deep, penetrating, searching, reflective conversations. Here's what I would say. Um, Of course, we have multiple selves in different parts of our life at work, at home, with our parents, with our spouse, with our kids. You know, we have kind of different selves we can toggle in and out of, but there seems to be this gravitational pull. As I mentioned earlier, we like to have the certainty and consistency of, of the character in our story. 
So we tend to gravitate and, and, and fall into those grooves that we dig so deeply into our minds. Here's what I find. The leaders who struggle to adapt to change, the ones who are most overwhelmed in this VUCA world, Wanda, they're the ones who tend to powerfully identify with one story and disidentify with the other. Now, this is worth exploring, but I want to set this up, too, to come back to later. The ones who I see who are able to rise above it, to roll with the punches, to bend and flex with the changes all around them, the versatile leaders, they're the ones who don't have so tight an attachment to a particular identity. Instead, they can kind of see each of these stories reflected in who they are in an authentic and sincere way. But now I've said an awful lot. We talked about folks who struggle to deal <laughs> with, with the, the VUCA world, and then we talked about the versatile ones who can. So let me let that one register before I go any deeper. So just to replay that one back, that people who deal with the VUCA, the chaos, the industrial revolution, the change, the complexity, the shift in senior leadership, the shift in strategic direction, the new demands, the ones who deal well with all of that are the ones who are not so attached to a single story. That's exactly what we found. Now, let me be real clear. There's not a lot of them out there. In the data, you know, you of course you know how we measure versatile leadership, and we you know, kind of put that on a continuum. We, we, we find that only about one in ten executives around the world, I mean, this is a database of 25,000 people from the last five years in all continents, except Antarctica, about 10% are truly versatile. So they're very rare, and it's hard to find them, but when we do get them, and when I come across my own practice where I have a chance to work with them on an intensely up-close kind of way to help them, you know, advise them um, in whatever capacity that they retain me, and we have these searching, reflective conversations, that's what I see. These are not people who are so hung up on a rigid, fixed sense of self, but they have a fairly flexible and breathable, if you will, identity okay. structure. That makes a ton of sense to me, and now you see why the inner and the outer work is so important, because if you don't do the inner work, then you don't look at my sense of identity and ask the question of, can I adapt it? Can I live with a different one? Is a different role required here? Um, and in, from an expertise leadership point of view, moving into a non-expertise leadership, that would be absolutely critical. If I can't identify myself as somebody other than the one with all the answers, then I'm going to struggle in a non-expertise world. I want to tie one more connection to this one, Rob, and then we're going to take a break. But one of my favorite people uh, who historically working on this one is Will Schutz. I know you know his work. Oh, yeah. And the whole notion of the FIRO B and how we choose to relate to people as individuals. And Schutz's original work with Navy crews who were in the uh, driver in running the ship at the top, navigating the ship. The crews that worked really, really well together were the ones, not that they had a lot of similarity, but they had yeah. flexibility in how they interacted with each other. So we come back right to that important word, flexibility. Or versatility. Mm. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break. 
When we come back, I want to talk specifically about this notion of versatility, flexibility. What is it? How do you measure it? What do you? How do you do something about it? And then we're also going to talk about how does this fit in the whole concept of you should play to your strengths and accentuate the positive. <laughs> so with me today is Rob Kaiser. Rob is an author, advisor, globally recognized authority on leadership. As you can tell, he works around the world in helping individual leaders and corporations assess their leadership capability, and then choose to take action on it. Um, part of that is the inner work as well as the outer work. He's the author of five books, The Versatile Leader, The Perils of Accentuating the Positive, Fear Your Strengths, to name three of them. And we'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., Helping organizations get it and keep it. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Rob Kaiser. Rob is an author, advisor, and globally recognized authority on leadership who's done a lot of scientific um, research on leadership as well as written a number of international business articles. The author of several books, The Versatile Leader, Leader and Fear Your Strengths, just to name a two. Now, we have been talking about the inner work and outer work, and I'm going to try to take a very rich conversation and summarize it in about two sentences. And if I say the most powerful concept in this one to me is that we all have stories we tell ourselves about who we are as leaders. Those give us a sense of purpose and of what we do. The hidden part of that one, just as viable, just as important, and just as much of a driver, is the part of who we are not. And it's when we pull out to look at both who we define ourselves as, as well as the polar opposite of that, the yang, who we are not, that you begin to see the ways in which you are limiting your options. 
people dealing with chaos and flexibility, complexity and uncertainty need greater flexibility. So the best leaders are the ones who are not committed to a single identity, but can grow and mature, shift and change their identity based on what the circumstances are needed. And we just called that one versatility, though what's popular in the current press is agility. I happen to think that they're pretty much the same thing. So Rob, let's start at the top. What does versatility mean to you? And equally important, how how do we go about assessing it? Well, you know, Bob Kaplan and I have been writing on this subject for, gosh, over 20 years now. And the the, the definition we came to, and, and i got to tell you, Kaplan was an English major from Yale. So every word in this definition we debated. <laughs> but for us, Wanda, versatility is, is, is a practical, simple concept. The ability to read and respond to changing conditions with a broad range of opposites opposing tendencies, uh, unhampered by a bias in favor of one and a prejudice against other ways. Well, say that one more time, Rob. That was a lot in there. Ability to read and respond. Yeah. So look, let me break it down. First off, versatility is all about the ability to read and respond to change. That's the key idea, read and response. There's kind of a cognitive aspect of sensing what's going on here, diagnosing the situation, and response. There's a very behavioral thing, as we were talking about earlier. But then we further unpack that. Read and respond to change with a broad range of options, unencumbered by a bias in favor of some and prejudice against the other. Bias and prejudice, those are the loaded terms that bring this definition to life and bring us into that that inner world of our attitudes and mindsets and identities and all that sort of stuff. Okay, and right back to our stories, because those attitudes and mindsets are going to be tied to how I see myself as a leader and the one thing I need to do, as well as what I haven't pulled out and looked at, which is what I don't do. Exactly. And let's talk about what we do and don't do, what we do sort of thing. What, what do we mean by leadership? Let's give some definition there. There's kind of a yin-yang, you know, two-sided conception to that in our model. We talk about the how and the what. Those are your first yin and yangs. And then you can even specify more specific yin and yangs within those. And the how, we're talking about the interpersonal side of leadership, how you relate to people. And we define that in terms of an assertive, forceful versus a more people-oriented, enabling style. Then on the what of leadership, you know, the organizational issues you focus on, the duality there is a strategic focus to zooming out and seeing the big picture and setting the course and then zooming in on the tactical details of execution on the operational side. So forceful versus enabling, strategic versus operational. Those are the yins and yangs on on the outer work of behavior, of leadership. So two components that we need to look at, the how, the interpersonal, how I choose to relate to people. And again, what is my bias? Which one do I favor? And which one am I prejudiced against, to use your language? And the what, what is it that I choose to focus on from an organizational point of view? Am I focusing on the strategic, the, in many ways I'd say the future, the direction, the innovation? Or am I focusing on the here and now, the execution details, make it happen in a cost-effective manner? 
Bingo. All right. So how do you assess this? Oh, well, we've got a cool little whiz-bang tool we do. I mean, look, here's the thing. You know, I, I spent all my career on psychological measurement and assessment and all that stuff. And I'll tell you, psychological measurement is about the fifth best way to understand something. <laughs> the very best way to understand anything is to go watch it in nature. And if you can't get out there in the wild, talk to the natives. So the whole 360 approach to assessment is something I very much believe in as the best way to, to gauge performance. But now, the standard way we go about doing 360s leaves a lot to be desired. First off, we have these hopelessly complex competency models that have these long, sprawling wish lists of stuff. So the first thing we do differently is, is we dare to exclude and, and, and try to represent the complexity of leadership in this simple yin-yang model of forceful and enabling strategic and operational. But then here's the other thing, Wanda, that helps us get at all the stuff we've been talking about. You know how five-point scales are everywhere, and it seems that it's just the only way we can measure anything. Uh, give me a rating of performance one to five, where it's somehow higher scores or better scores. Well, the problem with that method is it overlooks one of the key things we learned from all that research at the Center for Creative Leadership on career derailment and how successful leaders come off the rails. The big finding, of course, was that strengths can become weaknesses when overused. You know, the hard charger who we like and think of as having good initiative as a director who all of a sudden starts to seem abrasive and with pointy elbows in the C-suite with that same behavior. Or the technical expert you were talking about before who we love for all that technical know-how and expertise, but we promote you to a bigger job scope and scale across the organization and it starts to look like tunnel vision and narrowness and an inability to lead across the enterprise. So these five-point scales just don't help us to understand when there's too much of a good thing. So finally, the other thing we uh, measure our behaviors with, the forceful enabling strategic operational tendencies, is we have coworkers give feedback on a Goldilocks scale. Too hot, too cold, or just right. And specifically, the scale ranges from too little to the right amount to too much on the extreme side. Okay. So now that will capture the flexibility idea that we've been talking about, that you're not so overly identified with one way of doing things, one view of what it means to lead, one bias, that you can't use the other one or can't see the value and purpose of the other one. And that takes me right back to the story you very told, told at the very beginning about an executive who felt that the, you know the most important thing to do as a leader was to bring incredible clarity, you know, like brutal clarity, <laughs> to the job. While you can respect that, what that misses is the people who get disengaged and can't relate to that particular style. So here we are. It's a good thing, but it's too much. Well, and that's it. So, so we go from, you know, the way we assess versatility. Uh, you know, would you be surprised to find out that you know, we, we took a poll and the survey said too forceful, not enough enabling. Mm-hmm. And here's the neat thing. I'm able to sit down with this guy and go over the feedback. And he can see in black and white terms that, you know, some members of the board, members of the executive team, uh, people on his team, 
saw him in these terms. But guess how he saw himself, Wanda? Hmm. How? Well, he did recognize that he could be a bit more enabling, you know, some of the things around supportiveness and encouragement and participative decision-making, that sort of stuff. So he got that part right. He knew he was too little on some of those enabling behaviors. But the interesting thing was on the forceful side, where he rated himself the right amount on things like direct when dissatisfied, high standards, holds people accountable, decisive, makes up his mind quickly. When everybody else was very clear, no, that's a bit too much. Oh. And so I presumably this helped him figure out what it is he needed to be aware of, whether he does something about it or not is open. <laughs> well, and that was, you know, that's that's the whole key. I mean, this is really the starting point for our work together. It gets interesting once we kind of identify what's going on. And, you know, the big thing is, too, to get his attitude about that. So here we are going over this feedback, and he looks at it, and he, you know, understandably, most people have a similar reaction to this type of exercise. They see something that contradicts their own self-perception. And, you know, you need to make sense of that. you got you got two choices. Either you change your mind or you kind of rationalize the disparity and say they got it wrong in some way. So here we go. He and I are talking about it, and he says, you know, I, I, I've heard this sort of feedback before, but I, I don't really buy it, he says. And I say, well, well, what do you mean? And he says, well, first off, you have to understand, we need to make significant changes around here. And sometimes you've got to come on a little strong to pull it off. So we had to talk about that, including me asking if there's any such thing as, you know, too strong. And he, of course, you know, in the abstract admitted that, yeah, sometimes you can push too hard to break it. But then it got really interesting when, you know, this conversation, these things always get existential, right? I mean, you're going over this feedback of what people think of you. And there's a clash between your worldview, perhaps, and the way other people see it. And so he starts telling me, he says, well, you know, and there's another part to this, Rob. This is just who I am. It's how I'm wired, he said. I was born this way. And then he kind of got self-satisfied, a little self-righteous one. He sat up real tall, and he says to me, he says, and you know what? I'm not willing to be untrue to myself and pander to this feedback. Mm-hmm. So I says to him, let me get this straight. You're telling me that if you were to be a little more sensitive to other people, and to tell them things you're concerned about in a way they can hear and that doesn't hurt their feelings, and maybe even seek their input once in a while, that somehow this would be disingenuous? (laughs) (laughs) And of course he realized the folly of what he was trying to tell me, right? And that's the thing, you know, these things get existential, they get deep real fast, and People get all hung up on who they think they are or who they're not. If you're grounded in a simple behavioral question where you look at yin and yang as both good, desirable things, and you frame it back to a person in that way, you know, my experience is most of the time they can sort of recognize that they're getting carried away here. Okay. You know, I, I've really come to this, this working definition of maturity, Wanda. Okay. As how much do you kid yourself about how much you've been kidding yourself? 
<laughs> how much do you kid yourself about how much you're kidding yourself? <laughs> I mean, come on. You were born this way? I mean, what, were you a natural born jerk? <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not. Let's hope not. Though some who work for him might say that indeed that was the case. Poor guy. All right. So let me come back to something you said earlier. We were talking in the last segment about people who are really good in adapting to change. So your notion of versatility, both read and respond to changing situations with a broad range of options. So versatile. And you said 25,000 people over the last five years around the world. 10%, 10%, 1 in 10 is versatile. Mm-hmm. That's right. So tell us again what distinguishes those people who are versatile in the same language we're using now. Yeah, right, right. Well, let, let me back into it. The first thing that distinguishes in is, is they are much more effective. Their results are better on the hard side. The people's engagement and their ability to recruit star players they've worked with in the past or people who've just heard about them. These versatile leaders are the ones who really get it done and people want to be a part of. So that's the first thing that distinguishes them. They're much more effective. But All right, hold on. Before you, go, before you go rushing off, their results, like their heart, because one of the things your brutal clarity guy is going to say is, because I'm so clear, we get better results. But you're telling me that the versatility, the being able to do both sides, the yin and the yang, gets better results? Absolutely. And here's the thing. So, so this, this, this guy from this case study, yeah, he did it. He got really good short-term results. He made his numbers. He, he, he gets stuff done without a doubt. But here's the deal. Now, the reason I was working with him is he was being considered on a short list for the succession pool. We double-clicked into it, and here's what we find. Engagement was low. Turnover was a little high in his business unit. And also, his peers couple guys who ran the other business units. They were the type of folks who were really suspicious of him. And when I talked with them about him, you could tell there was a real concern that were he to get promoted, there would be a defection. So if you look at a balanced range of effectiveness indicators, he didn't max them all out. He didn't optimize the different trade-offs. He focused on those short-term results to the exclusion of everything else. So he'll get short-term results, but presumably even the hard numbers, the performance indicators over time start to drop. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a very short-term mentality, you know. Think about it. I mean, of course, this kind of forceful, assertive, take charge, you know, be really clear, barking commands type of leadership, you know, it's around for a reason. It can be effective, and in the type of situation that it works in is in a crisis or where, you know, things are going kerfluey in a very short term. We've got to solve the problem. The issue is it's not very sustainable. Well, and again, when we come back to the need to be flexible, to adaptable, to a VUCA, whatever we want to call it, world, um, when you've only got one style, then it isn't going to go very well. Okay, so I stopped you. You said one in ten versatile leaders are really good with the results. That's the first thing. They tend to regroup teams and engagement is really high. Okay? Yep. Yeah, they optimize all the different kinds of things we want from our leaders. They're able to get it all done, more or less, or more of it done, I'll say. But, you know, we're trying to back our way into this whole identity construction and who am I and the stories we tell ourselves. And here's the neat thing about these folks is that they 
first off, like I was saying earlier, they don't take themselves too seriously. You know, they can kind of recognize it when they're kidding themselves. <laughs> they have a certain openness. Uh, they're responsive to feedback. At the key, here's what I think it is, Wanda, and it goes back to the simple part of our definition of versatility, the ability to read and respond. They're not hung up trying to protect a certain image of themselves. They're more focused on what's going on in the operating environment and with other people. Because they're attentive to what's happening around them, they can better adapt their behaviors. All right. So attentive to the world around them, and they're not hung up on protecting a certain image of themselves. Okay? Yep. Wow. That gives them the ability to flex, adapt, shift, that's, change. That's what I've concluded. That's right. Working with a handful of these folks, and, you know, we've, we've studied them pretty carefully. I'll tell you a couple other things that indicate or that, that are associated with this, this versatility. Uh their career histories are varied. They've had a bunch of different types of jobs, sometimes a range of industries, certainly a range of functions. Usually they've had some sort of expat. They've launched new products. They've had to, to riff and shut things down. They've had this, this broad diversity of, of challenges they've had to, to deal with. That's a big thing seems to be associated with developing this broader repertoire of behaviors, but also a view of oneself that's not rigid and fixed, but rather adaptable. I can see how this is a lovely self-fulfilling cycle. So because I don't have a rigid sense of myself, I can be quite responsive to the world around me and a little more open to reading it. I don't have to read it my way. I can read it, however, in multiple ways. And I can respond to what's around me. That makes it possible for me to go into a broad range of different jobs, which then just reinforces my flexibility and adaptability and versatility. Yes, that's it. There's a very much a self-fulfilling cycle to the whole thing. And the key thing you said, I don't always have to see it my way. Yeah. So, and we are right back. You can see why the inner and the outer work is so important. Yes, there is the outer view, but which is matters. You know, how you say things to people makes a huge difference. But at the same time, if you don't stop to look at the inside view of yourself, you don't develop the flexibility that it takes to lead effectively. All right, now, Rob, before we go, you've alluded to this one. I know we've only got a few more minutes, and I would be terribly remiss if I didn't get you to talk about this whole notion of accentuating strengths. So you know it's a popular notion. Let me ask. I want to assess my strengths. I want to look at what I'm really good at, and I want to do more of what I'm really good at. And you say, wrong idea. Why? Well, wrong idea for senior leaders. I mean, if we're trying to develop effective executives who can lead their organizations to the constant disruption that is the modern economy, uh, a strengths-based approach ain't going to get us there. I mean, look, the labor economy has shifted big time, right? Uh, There's not enough good folks to go around. The war for talent of the 20th century looks more like a street fight these days. So I kind of understand why HR and talent management is in love with these sort of feel-good approaches. You know, the whole thing behind the big strengths movement that got so popular is this basic idea that says, and it's great, too. They've got a good marketing machine. It comes from the Gallup organization that you know, surveys millions of people all the time. So they, they, they put this guise of this is research-based, and they say, you know, we've crunched the numbers, and the answer is greatness never comes from fixing weaknesses. 
At best, maybe you get mediocre. The only way to achieve greatness is by maximizing your strengths. So you get silly things like people saying, you know, hey, haven't you heard the news, Kaiser? Fixing weaknesses doesn't work. Playing to strengths, that's where it's at. And of course, it's a simple, feel-good story. It's an easy sell, but it overlooks a whole lot of stuff. The big one being what we talked about earlier. The number one reason executives derail. And here's another stat for you. The global base rate of derailment is 50%, meaning half of all senior managers are removed from their job at some point in their career. And the number one dynamic associated with that is strengths become weaknesses when overplayed. So you think you can play a couple of things that you're pretty good at and come natural all the way to the top? Think again. It'll get you to the top and take you right over the edge. Here's the other thing, Wanda. Senior leadership is a big job. To handle the scope and scale of those responsibilities takes a broad repertoire. We were talking about range earlier. Mm -hmm. You've got to have a wide repertoire of skills to handle all these different challenges. Well, the problem is if you focus on just your strengths, you neglect developing these other muscles. And at some point, those weaknesses will turn out to be fatal. They'll kill you. If you can't or won't attend to all the blocking and tackling it takes to execute, or if you can't or won't step back and look at the big picture and pivot the organization, if you can't or won't hold people accountable, or if you can't or won't coach and mentor people, at some point, these things come back to bite you. Weaknesses matter, especially in a leadership job. They're not elective. Wow, Rob. Incredible. So I want to repeat a stat that you said there. When we're looking at developing senior leaders, 50% of senior leaders are removed from their job at some point in time. Sometimes we dress that up and make it look very nice and very publicly appropriate, and sometimes we don't do that quite so well. But either way, 50% get removed. And the number one reason for being removed... I was going to say the number one reason for being removed is that strengths suddenly become weaknesses. The things you did so well at one point in time that were called for in that situation don't fit the current situation that you're in or the demands of the current group. So we're right back to versatility, this ability to read and respond to change with a broad range of options, not biased against one or prejudiced against the other. I love it. Fabulous definition. So with me, Rob, it's been a great show. We're, we're coming to the close here. So with me today is Rob Kaiser. Rob is an author, advisor, and globally recognized authority on leadership. As you can tell, has done a lot of scientific research and written a lot in the international business press. The author of several books, my three favorites, are The Versatile Leader, The Perils of Accentuating the Positive, which we've just been talking about, and Fear Your Strengths is one of the more recent. He's the current editor of Consulting Psychology Journal, and he is an executive coach, an evaluator of candidates for top jobs, and a strategic advisor to CEOs in HR on their talent. I think, Rob, when I look back on the show, the concept that I really want to come back to is this notion of the yin and yang, which is the title. Hmm. And the yin and yang in that the leaders in today's modern economy with change and chaos and uncertainty and complexity and a thousand new things we haven't even thought about are the ones that are not so stuck in one image of themselves, one identity of themselves, and who can see themselves in multiple places. 
So that gives them the ability to re- to read the situation and then to respond with a broad range. And it also means to get there, to develop, to mature, we have to be willing to look at our inner view of ourselves of what we are and what we're not, as well as adapt to the outer behavior. So Rob, thanks for being guest. No, it was my pleasure, Juan. A lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. And join us again next week as we continue the conversation on what it means to lead outside your expertise. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.